Today is the first in a two-sermon series on Psalm 126. Today is called, We Are Like Those Who Dream. Our text is Psalm 126, verse 1 through 3. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day to come before you, to lift our song to you, to praise you, to thank you for the unbelievable grace that you pour out upon us every day. We come here, Father, because we are in need. And we pray now that you open our hearts and our minds and give us ears to hear and eyes to see the glory of the Lord. Shape us and mold us, Father. Give us hope. Convict us of our sin and lift us up. Bless me and give me clarity. And I pray, Father, that you let these meager words feed your sheep. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard news so glorious, so stunning, that it numbed your heart? Have you ever gotten news so unexpected and so overwhelmingly good that you staggered about speechless? That it caused you to question reality? What I'm talking about happened to the patriarch Jacob, who believed his son Joseph was dead. Jacob was in mourning and perpetually lived in sorrow. And then in Genesis 45:26, he gets the news that Joseph is in fact still alive. His sons come to him and say to him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all of Egypt. And Jacob's heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Jacob is gripped by joy that affects the function of his body. He hears news so great it causes him to disbelieve. Jacob doubts the news because of the wonder of it. It's too good to be true. His doubt originates, believe it or not, in the goodness of the news. Don't we all react that way to wonderful news? What God does is often so wonderful, it's too good to be true. But the point of good news always is belief, not unbelief. And what God is trying for is not a dry intellectual belief but a belief that starts in the gut and springs forth in delighted laughter. God overwhelms evil with good, the poorness of fallen man with the wealth wealth of of our risen Lord. God takes what is empty and fills it to the point of breaking and dissolution. God's outpouring is good. So good, in fact, it startles our intellect and strains our faculties to understand. And God does this to fill up the lowly with glorious song and rich laughter, so that the world will praise his name. That is the Christmas story. That is the Christian story. And that is your story. Today is the day of the Lord, a day to marvel at God's goodness. It's also Christmas tide, in which we celebrate the feast day with song, food, presents, and lights. We remember the implausible reality 
that God descended into the womb of a woman to fulfill all his promises. It's the season in which we get a special opportunity to comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we, yes, we, may be filled with the fullness of God. My message today is this. God overwhelms us with glorious blessing to fill us with laughter and song, to get the world's attention. God acts, and his actions overwhelm us with glorious blessing. Now, Psalm 126 mentions at the very beginning the restoration of Israel's fortunes, a return from captivity, a victory after a long period of defeat. It's not specific to a certain episode of restoration. That's what makes this psalm so interesting. It's about the people of God and our common experience. No restoration, though, was as remarkable and complete as the great exodus in Christ. As it says in Ephesians 4.8, Christ led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, that's a very strange phrase. God led captivity captive. God took away our captivity. He took away our sin. God takes away to replace He empties us to fill us. Jesus gave gifts to replace what he has taken, and those gifts are, in fact, far greater than what he has taken. Compare death to life, the emptiness of fallen humanity to the fullness of the self-sustaining triune God. Compare joy to sorrow, laughter to tears, song to silence, fear to courage, faith to despair. Compare the taste of cake to the taste of ashes. Christ has come, and in his wake is a startling, overflowing grace that drowns our death and numbs our hearts and baffles our intellect. We are like those who dream. Is it true? Is it real? Are we, you and I, the inheritors of the stars? Do we really stand perfect before the Father? Was our God a suckling babe? Was the Eternal One born of all things in a Roman province under Caesar Augustus to a virgin maiden? We are like those who dream, and we blink in the brightness of the light like those struggling to wake up. God's goodness is like a dream because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Our limits can't bind him. With God, all things are possible. We hear and we see with our flesh. God's actions and promises are contrary to our own experiences. His actions are nearly incomprehensible because our minds are created and finite, full of creation's limitations. Think about it. Your flesh aches. Your strength fails. Our imaginations have borders and boundaries. For instance, how can we comprehend the idea of eternity? Eternity. We're surrounded by beginnings and endings. What does it mean to have no end? Furthermore, God was a man. God was a man with two natures, conceived by the Holy Spirit, laid in a manger, honored by angels and, of all things, shepherds. It sounds too good to be true. 
as fallen creatures, we are too weak to believe these wonderful things. And so Christ came. Christ came and cleansed us from the inside out and poured into us his spirit. Christ cleansed and lined the interiors of our hearts with reinforced steel so that he could pour into them his infinite love, his limitless spirit. So that drunk on 100 proof grace, we would stagger about dazed with God's glory. He reinforced the cavern of our hearts with his pure and perfect blood so that the fullness of God could dwell there. Turn with me to to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. For this is the reason I bow my knees before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God's Spirit gives us strength. He gives us the ability to comprehend the things he does. It's not a dream. It's not a dream. God's love is ours in Christ Jesus. To us was born a baby, a God child, who didn't stay a child. No, he grew big enough and strong enough to carry a cross up a hill and to lead captivity captive in his wake. God's work isn't a dream. Satan's is. Satan's dream passes away as the son of righteousness rises with healing in his wings. We are all undone. We are all disarmed. We are all defeated by the grace of God. And I'm not saying that God defeats Satan, sin, and death, and you just stand by as an onlooker. Jesus defeated your selfishness with his selfless sacrifice. Jesus defeated your self-righteousness with his perfect obedience to our Father. Jesus defeated your worldly wisdom with heavenly foolishness. Jesus defeated your pride with his humility. God came as a man to defeat death and you, who were an enemy combatant, are now a member of his body. Awake. Awake. Blink away the doubt. It's not a dream. We are undone and remade by God's unmerited favor and compassion. A perfect, a perfect example. <laughs> a perfect example of what I'm talking about occurs in Acts 12, 6 through 12. Acts 12, 6 through 12. I'll beat you all there. I have flags. Acts 12, verse 6 through 12. This is very interesting. 
Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on the very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And Peter did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and then the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Peter is freed. He's freed from his captivity. God's grace visits him, and he is like one who dreams. He goes through the motions, puts on his sandals, wraps his cloak around himself, all the while thinking it's just a dream. God overflows his ability to comprehend with blessing too good to believe. Think about when you first believed, when you first emerged from the water of baptism, when the first flush of love for God reddened your cheeks, when you first realized God would hear your prayers, when the church's fellowship first welcomed you, when the Bible became true, the first time you knew what a sin was and you confessed it and felt no shame because you knew that you were forgiven. We are like the apostles in Luke 24.10. Jesus showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, Jesus said to them, Have you anything to eat? Here, here's my hands. Here's my side. Do you have a sandwich? Next. (laughs) They're still staggering around. Is it true? And he's moving on to feasting to celebrating. The blessing and grace of God is difficult to believe because it's so glorious. It's so glorious. That's what makes it so hard to believe. Pastor Wilson wrote in his recent book on Christmas, Our good God, our overflowing God, our God of yes and amen has always been able to promise far more than we are able to believe. I am not here speaking of unbelief or of hard hearts, which is another problem altogether. I am speaking here of a true and sincere faith, a God-given faith, but one which is still finite and which God loves to bury under an avalanche of promises. We serve and worship the God who overflows, who delights to overflow. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, a cascading waterfall of infinite pleasure with no top, no bottom, no back, no front, and no sides. Nothing but infinite pleasure in motion, and every one of those pleasures is attached to his promises. And the scripture says that every one of his promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. 
He overwhelms us with the ability for us to believe what he's going to do. And then he doesn't just do it. He comes over the top and overflows even our wildest expectations. Consider what God has done for you. What he has already done for you. And use that as the basis of your expectations. Things too good to be true that overwhelm. God has overcome us with a staggering provision of grace to train our imaginations to run wild with anticipation and hope. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Christ is just the beginning. You get him and you get all of the glorious provision and blessing and grace in his wake. When I was a child, one of my favorite things to hear was my father say, watch this. It was always followed by feats of strength. By magic. By the most unexpected. We used to stay up late at night talking about the fact that my father could do anything. Our Father in heaven, who caused donkeys to talk and seas to part, and a virgin to conceive and stars to descend and stand at attention above lowly mangers, who loved you enough to slay his only son, he loves to say, watch this. Watch this. And God loves to startle us, to fill us with laughter and song. Psalm 126.2 says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. God takes away our captivity and our slavery. He takes away sorrow and overwhelms us with the blessing of joy. God wants us to be like him, to imitate him, to be shaped by him. He commands us, be holy as I am holy. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Love one another as I have loved you. So God startles us with his blessing. He reveals himself so that pondering him, we might know joy take delight, and be filled with mirth. God overcomes our curse with blessing, our dourness with jovial love, our pessimism with glorious hope. Jesus states the reason he has revealed himself in John fifteen eleven. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. God's aim is to fill the empty with his joy. And the nature of his joy is found in Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God is in our midst and sings in his joy, gladness, and love. 
God has visited us, freed us, and dwells us to give us a joy that sings, a gladness full of laughter. That is the Christmas story. That is the Christian story. And that is your story. In our sin, we doubt and weep. God frees us so that we may believe and sing. Now, I'm not saying that God lifts us, fills us with laughter, and fills us with song, and if you aren't singing and if you aren't laughing, you aren't full of God. I'm not saying that. Psalm 126 begins with a restoration. As if Israel had known blessing, passed through a period of uncertainty and travail and emerged again with unexpected blessing that God used to set them laughing and singing. See, God loves to mature us and sanctify us, to take us from glory to glory. Our trajectory is always upward, though it's not a straight line, and I think we can all testify to that. We have a weekly Sabbath, remember, because God knows we need to renew the covenant with him that often. (laughs) And it's been a long year. Lots has happened to us. Many things are uncertain, and here we are again, liturgically, seasonally, pondering what seems impossible. The God-man, the Christ child, the God among us who cleansed us so that the Spirit might dwell among us in a Middle Eastern town amongst livestock under Roman tyranny. God cried for his mother's breast. We are like those who dream. Nothing is impossible for God. Ponder it and feel the numbness grip your heart. Begin to imagine what's possible. What might God do next? We serve a God of wonder, so sing. Raise your glasses and cheer. Lift your prayers up to God's throne, even as your countenance lifts with the mirth of God's glorious gift of Jesus Christ. Let's consider for a moment, two empty women that God filled, that God overwhelmed with joyous blessing, which demonstrate everything that I'm talking about today. Abraham's wife, Sarah, laughed at God's promise to give her a child because the promise seemed so ridiculously impossible. She laughed at God. And God said quite literally, oh yeah, watch this. And then in Genesis 21, 6 through 7, we read a joy-filled, humbled, transfixed Sarah say, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. God delights to do what his children think is impossible to set them laughing, to startle them, to fill them with joy and praise. Another example is found in Luke chapter 1. Mary, the Lord's mother, was visited by an angel who startled her, an angel who greeted Mary with a greeting too glorious for her, in her own opinion, and the angel told her news too marvelous to believe. Mary was already a daughter of God. She wasn't found singing, but God startled her with glorious news, with greetings of joy to set her singing. And Mary's response was, in fact, to compose a song to commemorate the glorious deliverance of God's people. My soul rejoices in the Lord, she begins. 
The mercy shown to her, shown to her people, shown to the whole world was so unexpected, so amazing, so singular that Mary could not do less than sing. Whether the moment you first believed or some fresh salvation or action of God on your behalf, at the moment when God turns our captivity, the heart turns from its sorrow. When Christ fills us with grace, we are filled with gratitude. Karl Barth said this, Grace creates liberated laughter. The grace of God is beautiful, and it radiates joy and awakens humor. It may be that you have been a believer for some time and that what's impossible in the Lord seems too good to believe. The Lord has set before you the record of his faithfulness. A sermon, again, where I mentioned reading the word of God. I'm shocked. This is what I go to. I think I'm not going to pray about that because it's impossible. And I know at that moment what I need is to be reminded of what God has already done that was impossible. This is a season where we sing, where we lift up our voices, where we consider the past, where we look to what God has already done for us and turn to a new year with expectation and hope. That is the point. That is the key. Don't be shaped by what your eyes see. Don't be shaped by what you see out your window and on the television. Don't be shaped by what the world tells you. Don't be shaped by your comprehension of what's going on in your life. Don't be shaped by only what you can imagine happening. Let the body of Christ minister to you. Speak the gospel to one another. Ponder the work of the Lord. Listen, listen, hear me. I bring you good news of great joy. It's hard to believe because it's so wonderful. God has come in the flesh as a man, the God-man, to build a bridge over the vast chasm separating us from him. He's built the bridge with his perfect life so that you don't have to be perfect. He's paid the toll to cross the bridge with his own blood. It's not a dream. This is the Christmas story. This is the Christian story. It's your story. We need to ponder this marvelous story as much as possible. We need to preach it to ourselves and to one another as often as we can. Let us laugh. Let us laugh in merriment. Let us sing in joy. Let us feast in hope. Let us shout and sing and laugh in joy for the glory of the Lord. Let us delight in his love, in his presence. That's why he sent his son. And he did. He did send his son. But not for our sakes alone, to cause us to, not for our sakes alone, but to cause us to raise a clamor in our joy, to get the attention of the world. This psalm at this point says something very interesting, and it, If you just hear it out loud, it's actually hard to to tell what's happening. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now, who's speaking there? Commentators don't agree. Is that all the testimony of people outside of the camp of Israel? Is it a response? The people outside of Israel say, look what God has done for them. And then the people of Israel say, look what God has done for us. 
it's actually a little confusing. But we know this. If we look at other places in Scripture, it becomes a little clearer. The work of the Lord sets the people of God laughing and singing, making a great clamor. That clamor causes the unbelievers to pay attention and sets them talking about what God has done for his children. The unbelievers don't attribute the work of God to themselves. The common is what God has done for them. And the people of God respond by stating it's what God has done for us, all of us. If you look at Luke 2.10, it says the good news of great joy is for all the people. I think what's going on in 126 is exactly what God wants to happen. We raise a clamor in the joy and the fear of the Lord that gets the world to pay attention, and then we tell them why we're singing. The good news of the Lord is communicated by the body of Christ together as a group in our celebrations in laughter and singing, and taking delight in what the Lord has done for us. God moves in mysterious and glorious ways. He sets his people singing in delight, and the world hears and listens and takes note and makes inquiries. The wise men came from afar to worship the new king. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 10, they came rejoicing greatly with great joy. Their reaction to God's work, their response to God in reverent an exuberant joy sets King Herod talking, inquiring, planning, reacting. Their rejoicing in the Lord for what he has done sets the world into motion. God's work causes his children to make a clamor and their worship, and that clamor gets the attention of the world. Now, I'm not saying that worship, laughter, and song are by any means the only ways we have for carrying the good news into the world but it is essential. It's at the heart of our collective mission as the people of God. We fight the dour, downtrodden world with laughter. We fight the coldness of the world with the warmth of song. We fight a selfish, self-glorifying culture with outward-focused worship of the triune God. It's not our only weapon, but the voice of one witness speaking the truth is not the same as a multitude of God's family together worshiping, singing the truth. The clamor of us, the clamor of us, happy, loud, reverent, joyous, and grateful, gets the attention of the world. It's like any time you've heard a noise and it caused you to go and investigate. We've all experienced these moments. We've all been in our house. We've heard shouting outside, and what do we do? Ignore it. We go outside and we see what's going on. Right? We'll be at work. We'll hear all of our co-workers laughing from the other room. We go rushing in there. They're all around a computer. We want to see what it is that they're watching. My least favorite, this has maybe happened to you, you're at a sporting event, and you're walking down the tunnel to get a soda, and all of a sudden the place goes crazy. (laughs) I thought a punt was a good time to go get a soda, but (laughs) then I have to run back up the tunnel trying to figure out what happened. Clamor gets people's attention. A great deal of shouting and noise and singing and just loudness draws people in. Let's consider an occasion, one of my favorite occasions of this in the Bible, in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, 
All Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard, and when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now, there are some obvious differences here. We're not in a war camp, and we're hoping to not cause them so much fear that they just run away. (laughs) But essentially, this is what I'm talking about. God's unexpected presence in the midst of his people causes them to rejoice with a great deal of audible praise. And that clamor affects the unbelievers and causes them to make inquiries, just like Herod did. Christmas every year is exactly like this. We are celebrating the coming of Christ into the world, and the world is still talking about it and still trying to figure out what it means. This is why I think all the celebrating that goes on is one of the reasons you find so many people coming to church during Christmas that wouldn't normally. We like the lights. People like the brightness and the festivity and the family and the candles and the food and all of, all of this celebrating. Of course, the problem is there's a lot of noise around this holiday, clamor such as Santa and Rudolph and Frosty. <laughs> And it's all the more important for us to lift up the reason for the season and set ourselves apart with the distinctive of our faith, Jesus Christ. Our hope is that the clamor we make won't merely cause inquiries, but would lead to conversion. Worship is warfare in more ways than one. When we make a joyful noise about the good news and grace of God, we are to make it loud enough for the world to take notice, to hear it, to consider it. As Spurgeon commented on Psalm 126, verse 3, it is a blessed thing when saints set sinners talking about the loving kindness of the Lord. And it is equally blessed when the saints who are hidden away in the world hear of what the Lord has done for his church and themselves resolve to come out from their captivity and unite with the Lord's people. The call to worship for the whole world is the songs of the saints. Our song is a call. Our laughter is a testimony. Our praise for our Lord is a proclamation. Let us delight in the Lord. Let us consider what he has done for us and shout for joy. Let's tell the world what God has done and that it is true. It's not a dream. It's so unexpected. The good news of Jesus Christ sounds too good to be true, but we know it is. Let us be filled with gratefulness and with joy. Let it overflow us into this world. Here we have the Christmas story for our everyday lives. The Lord has done great things for us, wondrous things, things that are hard for us to believe. And the Lord in his redemption is stretching our imaginations and our ability to hope. Believe in the Lord. Believe in the things he has already done and let and done. 
that have seemed too good to be true and let that startling reality give you wild anticipation and expectation of what he's going to do next for you. Let what he's done shape what you believe he can do in the future. Let the work, the works of God shape your mind, your laughter, and your song. God has led your captors into captivity. He has taken away to fill. And what he fills us with is his joy, the joy of the triune Lord. We are like those who dream. Let us ponder this good news and sing. Let it overwhelm us, for God desires to delight us in delighting in him. God desires that our clamor, our worship, and rejoicing would get the world's attention, would call the children of God into dinner. Let us feast and make merry, and look to the Lord who didn't spare his only son on your behalf, and who loves to say, watch this. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We all believe, but help our disbelief. You are too wonderful. You are too amazing. Father, we need your spirit to help us comprehend what you have done for us. To look to you, to be shaped by you, to be molded by you. Give us faith, Father. Give us faith. Give us joy and give us hope. Teach us, Father, to look away from this world and look to you. To be shaped by you. To make a shout, a great shout for your glorious name that the world would hear. We thank you for this Christmas time, this festival that we get to spend with our families, and we pray, Lord, that you bless it. Bless the food and the presents and the cheer. And we pray, Lord, that you give us a great conviction in our heart to laugh and to sing and to give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.